This is episode two of the Pharma Forum podcast. My name is Dominic Tyre, and I'm Pharma Forum's creative director. For this episode, I went to Infirst Healthcare in London, where I met the up-and-coming consumer healthcare company's CEO, Manfred Chesh. A former European president at GSK Consumer Healthcare, Manfred talked about how he's seen the consumer health sector develop, what it's like for Infirst competing with Big Pharma, and innovation within the consumer sphere. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other instalments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The podcast is also available on iTunes, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. I'm here with Manfred Chesk, who's Chief Executive Officer of Infirst Healthcare in their London offices uh, for a chat about uh, the direction of consumer health and uh, the application of innovation to it. So, Manfred, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's, it's a pleasure uh, and uh, I'm glad to have you here. Don't so, uh, great. So, perhaps we could start off with just a little a positive history of yourself. How, how do you find yourself... Uh, uh, sitting in, in London, how, how, how have you uh, got got to this stage? Well, uh, I uh, I think I can call myself rightly uh, an industry veteran. Uh, spent close to 40 years, I think, in uh, large uh, large uh, over 30 years in large corporations. 25 of this in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, specifically with GlaxoSmithKline and its legacy, SmithKline Beecham and Beecham. Uh, and when I left GlaxoSmithKline in 2010, uh, I was still full of energy and didn't feel like I'm ready to retire. <laughs> so, but nor did I feel like I should go back into another large corporation. I have kind of been there, done that, and uh, been specifically looking for something more entrepreneurial. Uh, I met a team of uh, people who were looking at drug development in a very different way, in a very interesting way, but also in a way which was leaning itself towards more primary care, consumer health care. And when I saw the products they were working on, I almost felt like it's a kind of innovation I would have I would have wished somebody bring to me when I was, uh, you know, running last large business for GSK. So I, uh, you know, I joined them and uh, started working with that team. Spent the first two or three years really on putting the structure in place, strategizing uh, what I wanted to do. Was uh, you know, it, within a company with one uh, one staff, which was me. Uh, and two, two and a half, three years in, I completed the fundraising and properly set up Infos Healthcare uh, with what it is uh, today. Uh, so that's how it started and uh, been eight years, eight exciting years, and uh, you know, very happy with where we are today. Okay, great. Well, we'll, we'll come on in, in due course to uh, Infos Healthcare and um, uh, innovation within, within the consumer sector, but um, I First, I'd like to draw on your experience. You mentioned that you were at GSK, and of course you were president of GSK's consumer health business across across Europe. I think maybe spent 20, 25 years in, in, in total at the, the company and its, its legacy companies. So from, from that vantage point, 
uh, how have you seen the consumer health sector develop and change um, in, in the US and, and Europe over the last five or ten years? In a way, I'm quite disappointed with how the sector has uh, developed and changed because this should have been, you know, the decades of this sector really, uh, uh, really steaming and growing and performing. Of course, the fundamentals are good. We have aging populations, and as we get older, we have, uh, you know, more ailments and more symptoms, which is the home territory of consumer healthcare. Uh, but also governments have, uh, you know, pushed more and more of their responsibility towards self-care. So all the fundamentals were right. And then you look at the growth of the industry, it's rather meager. Uh, it's actually trailing behind the prescription uh, market growth, uh, and already only being a tenth of its size. And the question is, why is that? And what I have, uh, what I would say is uh, the sector has really focus on uh, on two big themes. One is M&A, or consolidation, uh, and uh, the other one is uh, global marketing, trying to globalize the assets they have. Uh, and you, so subsequently you've seen, you know, big acquisitions. Subsequently the, the multiples, the prices paid for the big targets going up all the time. Uh, and on the other side we have seen, uh, you know, changes in global infrastructure and organization more, more towards global marketing, you know, with one set of instruments, brands and, uh, and go-to-market strategies being applied everywhere. Uh, now, that has worked to some extent for the big guys, uh, but not across the board. Uh, because if you look at how the sector has performed, they just said they're training behind Rx, they're not growing the way they should grow. Of the top 10 in 2016, only the top three have shown growth, and most likely from consolidation rather than uh, you know, organic growth. Uh, and if you look at where's, uh, where's the biggest growth in the entire sector, then it's in the companies below the top 50, which have grown from, I think, something like 45% to 53% in importance in 2016. And I dare to say this is because of lack of innovation. Uh, obviously, if you focus on global marketing, if you focus on M&A, uh, you're not focusing on really developing new products or improving products. Uh, and I think this is uh, quite evident if you look at these organizations, how much money do they spend uh, percent of sales on R&D? It's not much. Uh, and if you look at the risk they are taking, if you look at the, in the money they spend on clinical studies, they're not doing many. <laughs> so it is, it is rather meager. And I think uh, and opportunities are being, being missed here. Uh, it's very obviously attractive to go for next big acquisition. It gives you different, uh, different scale, different league, and you can take cost out. It's not driving the industry and not driving the sector. And uh, certainly as, as a journalist um, covering the pharmaceutical industry for well, nearly, nearly 20 years now, you can certainly uh, see that those, those waves of uh, well, the, uh, mega mergers, as um, the, the, the journalist shorthand <laughs> tends to be uh, occurring, a li little bit fewer, I suppose, nowadays, that there aren't that many more companies, one would assume, that can still merge. But yeah. Um, we'll see. We've seen uh, in, in the pharma space, uh, uh, Takeda um, snapping up uh, Shire just just yet. So there's still no no end to, to the big mergers within uh, big pharma. I think in consumer we have seen a bit of a shift. Uh, as I said, uh, you know the prices for the targets have gone up, uh, you know, almost every year. Uh, but.
but then we've, we've also seen a shift more from acquisition to mergers. Um, we've seen uh, GSK Novartis merging their consumer business, mm-hmm. businesses. We've seen uh, uh, Beringer uh, and uh, Sanofi uh, merging or swapping uh, businesses. So that's been a bit more of a trend. Uh, but that goes also along with the trend of... Uh, uh, obviously, the prices having reached the ceiling, uh, and obviously everybody will have seen that uh, Pfizer has tried or is still trying to uh, divest their consumer business and uh, has failed mm. to attract bidders. Uh, two bidders left who have then dropped out. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen next, but uh, uh, there appears to be, uh, you know, uh, at least uh, a temporary ceiling uh, being being reached. Yeah. So this, uh, within that, then, you've got so much attention focused on M&A and mer- mergers and just the business of, of doing, doing business, perhaps. What does that mean for innovation? Or what has that meant for innovation within consumer healthcare? Uh, I suppose one tends to think of the consumer space as not quite as nimble, perhaps not quite as innovative as uh, clearly as, as, as biotech or maybe traditional pharmaceuticals. But within, within consumer, then, how has innovation been affected? Well, fundamentally, the consumer healthcare sector is generic in nature. You wouldn't find uh, a new molecule uh, you're going straight into consumer. Very, very, very rarely that is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know of one or two cases, but that is the absolute exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, so typically, it's generic. Uh, these are products already uh, uh, proven uh, to be safe and effective uh, within the remit of the prescription market and then eventually uh, become you know, switches and made available directly to uh, consumers. So not surprisingly, a switch has been uh, a centerpiece of the innovation strategy of that sector for decades. More so in the US than in Europe, uh, by the way, uh, very, to a very, very different scale. Uh, but switches are drying out. All the easy switches have happened, uh, and uh, there are not many, uh, you know, uh, not many coming behind. Uh, and in order to go for the next big switches, that will require a completely different set of uh, risk-benefit uh, assessment from regulators, as well as pharmacovigilance uh, uh, requirements. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, that won't be easy. Then if you look at the wider scale of what, what are the tools and uh, the, the strategies being used in consumer, it all centers down, you know, centers around uh, on uh, trying to uh, lower the regulatory risk as much as we can, uh, you know, lower the cost, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, and find ways to address uh, pathways in a different way. So you will find a lot of borderline products, so borderline. Uh, you know, medicines, cosmetics, borderline medicines, food, dietary supplements, lower regulatory hurdles, easier to do. Uh, you will find uh, even medical devices, uh, widely used, products which you wouldn't think are medical devices, but these may be products, uh, even uh, ingested products, which do not work, act systemically and are being launched as medical devices, you know, with lower regulatory requirements. Uh, in all boils down to lowest possible risk, uh, maximum chance of success, and how do we can, can I get the best claims out of it? To the extent that sometimes the claims uh, are more important than the actual efficacy of the product. Okay, so within this uh, environment then, 
what's the role of in-first healthcare? Where, where do you fit into uh, to, to the sector, would you say? First of all, if you look at uh, our website, uh, you know, at what we do and what we say, uh, we, we call it known, uh, known drugs made better. Uh, and uh, I think... Uh, I think the essence is that uh, we fundamentally believe that uh, known drugs and known molecules uh, can be improved. I'd like to say that if the pharmaceutical industry would have developed the iPhone, we would still have the iPhone 1. Because somehow, continuous improvement is not uh, what we do. You can go to any other industry and they continuously improve their product. Uh, when iPhone brings out a new iPhone, you can be sure that they're already working on the next, if not the next two generations to follow up on this. And that's just not the case in the, uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, once we have a product approved and ideally patent protected, uh, it is good to go until it expires uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, you can go generic. So we are not uh, really applying continuous improvement techniques and strategies. This is where we come in. No drugs made better. So we're not reinventing wheels. We're not looking for new molecules. We're looking for substances already known to be safe and effective, trying to improve them by making them easier, more efficacious, more safer, or ideally both. And within that then, um, exactly, specifically, what, what sort of drugs are you looking to, to, to make better? And, and how, what sort of things can you do to take these known drugs and, and make them better? Our key, uh, our key asset is uh, uh, ibuprofen, which we have worked on for the last eight years. We have a few other uh, molecules uh, we, are, we are working on and we are looking at, but uh, ibuprofen is, uh, is probably the best, uh, best example. Ibuprofen has been around since the 60s uh, and uh, one of the most widely used drugs in the world, probably. Uh, and uh, if I look at the uh, look forward at the need for NSAIDs, uh, if anything, it's going to increase because uh, more and more, even uh, more and more age-related symptoms and conditions uh, associated with inflammation. Uh, and uh, so inflammatory control uh, is an increasing uh, need. So uh, that's why we were attracted to NSAIDs and to ibuprofen uh, in particular. But also, as we see, it is used more and more widely uh, that more and more side effects come to the surface. Uh, so we, we've always known that uh, NSAIDs, ibuprofen, uh, are GI erosive and uh, that uh, you know, some patients uh, suffer from uh, either mild uh, or up to, all the way up to very severe uh, GI side effects. Uh, we have recently, uh, in the recent years, learned the cardiovascular risk uh, which go along with ibuprofen including uh, stroke and heart, and heart attacks. Uh, we, have, uh, we are aware of, uh, very rarely so, the risk of uh, chronic uh, kidney uh, diseases to go along with NSAIDs. And all these side effects uh, are dose duration related. So looking at the formulation of uh, ibuprofen or the presentation of ibuprofen and find a way where we can present it in a dose-sparing uh, uh, way uh, in other words, keep the efficacy but lower the dose, we thought that's a very attractive uh, thing to do, and that's what we focus on. Uh, specifically, what we have done is we formulate um, ibuprofen in lipids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 
which you know, brings a number of, uh, of, uh, of benefits. Uh, and uh, we have a few immunologists uh, in our team or in the, in, in the starting team who uh, know a lot about uh, uh, immunology and, uh, and, and how to target uh, immune cells uh, or attract immune cells to be more precise. Uh, lipids uh, are well-known uh, adjuvants in, uh, in vaccine technology, but uh, are not used much in, in, in you know, with, with, with classical drug development uh, other than improving absorption. Uh, but, uh, so this is what we focus on uh, initially. A lot of laboratory work uh, to experiment uh, with various compounds and with uh, lipids. Uh, they've been put through a whole series uh, of uh, preclinical assays uh, mm -hmm. in which we have been able to demonstrate uh, superior efficacy in pulmonary inflammation models and uh, gastrointestinal inflammation models and rheumatoid arthritis inflammation models and gastroerosion uh, models, uh, and that gave us the, uh, uh, the, 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 the confidence to go into full-blown development of this uh, improved ibuprofen. Quite a, quite a gutsy move to look at um, the work you're doing to uh, innovate known drugs, but then you've also been running, running clinical trials to yes. actually back up what the work you've been doing, which is uh, quite an unusual move within, within the consumer healthcare space. Yes. Correct, yeah. I mean, coming out of the preclinical development that gave us the confidence really to do two things. Uh, first of all, a full-blown drug development uh, of, you know, a quasi-generic drug. Uh, but also, secondly, uh, you know, clinical uh, development and clinical proof uh, of uh, the efficacy of what we wanted to demonstrate. Uh, and uh, if I may go to the uh, clinical side, yes, we have uh, we've put the product uh, into a uh, large phase three study. Uh, probably one of the largest studies uh, of ibuprofen for decades and certainly, uh, as far as I know, the only study, uh, the first and only study in the specific patient population uh, with uh, flaring uh, uh, joint pain or flaring uh, knee pain. Uh, that's what we have done. And in that study, we were able to demonstrate uh, that uh, what I call dose-bearing er earlier that our formulation, uh, ibuprofen formulated or dissolved in lipids, uh, is as effective as, as at an OTC dose, as effective as a prescription dose to reduce uh, pain and, uh, and inflammation. Uh, and that was very uh, obviously uh, you know, exciting. Uh, also, you know, as uh, on top of this, we have seen in that very study, uh, which was a three-arm large study, over 460 patients in there. Uh, across the uh, UK and the Netherlands. We've also seen that the AEs, the adverse uh, events, uh, specifically uh, the GI events, were significantly lower uh, in our group than in the prescription dose group. When it comes to the, uh, the, the sales and marketing um, push behind the, the, the mm -hmm. product, and you'll, you'll be looking uh, to, to reach the both, both patients and healthcare professionals, or, or, or both patients, or, or just patients with, with this with the product. At this stage, we have we have we have obtained a license uh, in the in the UK. And if I may, you know, shift a little bit, I don't want to underestimate uh, that uh, the uh, the leap, uh, you know, we had to uh, to take 
at the leap of faith to develop the drug. Uh, you know, we spent you know over eight years. We spent over 20 million pounds on that development, and even uh, you know within larger companies' uh, budget, uh, that's uh, you know that's that's a big big uh, effort. Uh, and uh, you know, apart from the clinical study, quite a bit was also uh, you know went into manufacturing development, turning this into uh, you know a proper product uh, with uh, with a manufacturing dossier, with uh, including uh, the whole sequence of analytical uh, you know analytical uh, requirements uh, which needed to be developed and validated. Uh, was was a huge task, mm-hmm. and uh, so subsequently, yes, we have uh, then we've been through the regulatory uh, uh, path in the UK. Initially, we have uh, Flown is uh, approved uh, with a P license, pharmacy only license, uh, right now. Uh, having said this, we have uh, prescription and uh, as well as GSL licenses in process, and uh, so we don't want to stop here. Right now, uh, the product is being marketed to consumers directly uh, as a P product, which is available uh, behind the counter to the pharmacist. Uh, but uh, on our pathway forward, uh, we want to go downstream as well as upstream. And this just goes with the utility which comes with NSAIDs. Uh, NSAIDs is one of these drugs. Uh, which has uh, that wide utility. You find it in hospital. You find it, uh, you know, at the uh, you know surgery level. You find it in, uh, you know, at prescription uh, behind the counter level, and you find it all the way, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to to grocery stores and on the shelf and uh, convenience stores. So this is how wide the utility is. And uh, so we're starting here, but we think we have uh, we can go much wider. In terms of going, going wider, not just with, with uh, Flower and this particular um, product, but your, your portfolio as a, as a whole, what, where, where would the next uh, directions do you think um, be for, for in-first healthcare? I'm, I'm sure you're concentrating right now on, on, this, on this, this first product, but looking to the future, where, where would you like to see more innovation within consumer healthcare that you think you'd be able to provide? That's a very good question, Dominique, and uh, you know, I, I'd like to say I don't quite know yet, uh, but l- let me explain why I say that, because we have a very exciting development in our portfolio, uh, which is uh, uh, you know, treatment for cough. Cough is not well looked after. It's one of these uh, areas where uh, you know, numerous Cochrane reports have stated there is no evidence that any of the cough medicine works, nor is there evidence that they don't work, uh, but there's also no European-wide or globally uh, you know, good understanding of uh, what should be used uh, for cough. Most of the products being used are of narcotic and opioid nature, uh, either uh, codeine or uh, dexamethorphine. We have uh, we have an asset uh, in our portfolio which is non-narcotic, non-opioid, uh, has shown uh, good efficacy, uh, and uh, which we could bring forward on a truncated uh, clinical and regulatory pathway. Uh, for which we already have uh, EMA approval for a centralized procedure eligibility. Having said this, uh, still, uh, you know, it still requires a clinical and regulatory program. At the same time, if we look at uh, you know, what we see almost every day coming up with Flarin, it's super exciting. It's like you're climbing a, you know, a hill and you, and, and you see near, in new land, and that's what we see. The opportunities uh, with Flarin uh, are enormous. We, 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 we gain even, you know, ever more confidence that this is a way NSAIDs in general should be formulated. Uh, and 
it, it is just fascinating, uh, you know, how that lipid formulation drives. Uh, I, I wouldn't say efficacy, you know, but it's more efficiently. Uh, so you we achieve more with the lower dose, uh, while at the same time, uh, you know, lowering, uh, improving GI tolerability. So it's a it's a tough question uh, with the scarce resources we have as a small, privately funded company. Are we pushing this further first, or are we going for the next opportunity? It's it's a nice problem to have, and I don't have. Sure. We're working on the answers, but I don't have the answer yet. Oh no, that's that's fair enough. I can imagine it's, it's quite quite a, uh, a tricky balancing act yeah. at, at yeah. the moment. So, I mean, you mentioned, uh, of course, that uh, in, in First Healthcare is a, a relatively small company. I think at, at, at the moment it must be quite different from your your days at GSK, sitting in GSK House in mm-hmm. in, in Brentford. So I mean, look, looking to not necessarily compare those two specific companies, but as, as a small company, what, what's it like competing with, with, with the bigger players? What, what are you able to do? What are you, what are you not able to do? Well, I think this applies to any industry. I mean, as you said, I've spent 25 years uh, with DSK uh, in continental Europe, uh, in the US, uh, in, uh, in, in London, uh, in, in the UK. Uh, and uh, I pretty much know, you know how it works. I've also, I know the industry. I've been, uh, I've served on, uh, on the beginners board in the US and in Europe. Uh, still, uh, you know, a member of the board uh, of the PHEB today. Uh, but you know, when you're in a small company and uh, you know in an entrepreneurial environment, it is quite obvious that uh, you have to do things uh, differently. Uh, you know, with limited resources. Uh, uh, compared to the big players with unlimited resources, large infrastructures, uh, we we cannot win by doing the same, uh, by thinking the same way, uh, by following the same templates. Uh, we we have to go uh, really, you know, where uh, the big players don't go, and we have to go, uh, you know, in ways where size doesn't matter, uh, but uh, you know where we. Uh, you know, find creative ways uh, to challenge the status quo, uh, and uh, but also, uh, you know, deliberately, you know, take risk which which a big player wouldn't want to take, uh, and uh, including the risk to fail. Well, Man- Manfred, we we began the this um, podcast interview looking at um, where the the consumer health sector has, has developed over the last five five to ten years. Uh, if I could ask you to get your your metaphorical crystal ball out and look look in a little bit into the future. Uh, clearly, if we look at the pharmaceutical industry, there's a an obvious shift to specialty care. One only has to look at the, the top selling um, pharmaceutical products mm. to see the, the the big hitters there in in oncology and uh, immunology uh, dominating the, the charts. And with that has come uh, uh, with it um, a shift away from primary care. So with that as some of the background, where would you see consumer healthcare going over the next next five to ten years, do you think? I think we will see a range of options uh, and, uh, and we see momentum and change, uh, you know, at, uh, at various ends. Uh, you know, on the one side we see uh, a few consumer players clearly going more towards uh, um, an FMCG approach to consumer care. Uh, or consumer healthcare, uh, and that would include uh, you know companies like uh, uh, Kiza, uh, you know who, who have come out of uh, you know FMTG. Not quite sure what's going to happen with Procter and Gamble. They seem to come back into uh, into consumer healthcare. There was a time when we thought they're going out. Uh, you know, partnering with uh, Teva now that uh, partnership uh, seems to go 
uh, you know, uh, somewhere else uh, they've acquired the, the uh, uh, e-work uh, consumer business. So there seems to be a new ambition, but they are clearly uh, FMTT players. I would say GSK was a huge uh, and uh, usually successful all cap portfolio, but then uh, you know OTC at the same time. I would put them more as a, you know, although they have big GSK behind them, but, but I think they are more an FMG, more more an FMGT player. Uh, so, which obviously would drag the the consumer healthcare business away from primary care, rather you know, toward, you know towards it. At the same time, I think we will find more you know smaller, mid-sized regional players who are uh, really utilizing uh, combined strengths in primary care and uh, in OTC. Uh, and if we look at, across the global or even the European landscape, we will find that uh, the markets work very differently uh, in every territory. We, we, you know, in a global company, we want it all to be the same, but it isn't. Uh, you know, in order to be successful globally, you have to accept asymmetry. Uh, and if I want to buy an ibuprofen uh, in UK, I can get it in a, you know, in a corner shop. If I want to do it in Germany, I have to go into a pharmacy, and uh, it's behind the counter. And if I buy, get it in France, I, you know, I, I'm probably fully expected to be, uh, you know, uh, paid by the government and be on prescription. But that's a world that we live in. So I can see that some companies will also do very well by combining primary care with OTC. Uh, and you know, being flexible to, uh, to play in, in either of uh, these areas. Not in specialty care, but also not in, you know, in hard-selling FMTG, but in a more ethical uh, kind of uh, definition of uh, uh, primary care, or what, you know, the way I like to call it is uh, first-line intervention. Uh, and uh, so, I, I, so I, I think there is no one template which will evolve. There will be various pictures of consumer health care uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, borderline uh, developments at the periphery towards food, towards cosmetics, and uh, towards dermatology and skin care and so forth. I know it will certainly be uh, fascinating, I think, looking at, at how that uh, develops. But it look, looks like we've come, come to the end of uh, the, the time for, for an interview for this, this part of the podcast. So, Man- Manfred, thank you very much for joining me for the interview. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Duncan. And that's it for this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with InFirst Healthcare's Manfred Shesh on consumer healthcare and innovation. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other episodes in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The podcast is also available on iTunes, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website to sign up for daily or weekly email pharmaceutical news and analysis bulletins. And follow us on Twitter, where we are at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.